Welcome back to Following Noah Dawn, a Stormlight Podcast. This week is episode 99, and we are covering chapters 11 through 15 of Dawn Shard. I have a couple announcements for next week, and specifically, and maybe the week following as well. But first of all, uh, Paul, how are you? Great. I'm uh, excited to to read some more of Dawn Shard and talk to that. Um, I'm excited to talk about it, and I feel every week we go through this is a week closer to reading Rhythm of War, which I'm really excited about here shortly. You should be. Elliot, how are you? I am also excited to be talking about Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I mean, uh, Dawn Shard. <laughs> Voyage of the Dawn Shard? Yes. Does that mean the Wander Sail is a Dawn Shard in that context? It's possible. I could see it. Okay, so the, today is episode 99. Next week is going to be episode 100. We are going to pause on Dawn Shard very briefly for episode 100. We will be finishing Dawn Shard with episode 101 and then picking up Rhythm of War for episode 102. But for episode 100, we are going to split episode 100 into two parts. The first part is going to be a everything the podcast has covered, inclusive spoilers, but no spoilers for outside of that. And we're going to be doing some retrospective celebration uh, reactions to some of our old clips. We'll have a couple guests uh, guests on the podcast to help us celebrate that, and it'll be a a fun episode for reaching 100 episodes. So congratulations in advance, Paul and Elliot, for reaching 100 episodes here, and we'll be celebrating on, on that day for part one. Uh, part two of that episode, we'll be talking about Secret Project 3, which Brandon Sampson recently gave us some preview chapters for, and we'll have a couple new appearances for that episode as well. So you guys, if you guys have read Secret Project 3, be sure to tune in to the second part of that one. And if you haven't, you can still join us for the first part of that one. So look forward to that uh, next week. All right. Do either of you have two words for episode 99 to summarize these chapters? Sure do. May I do hear, them? hear them? I was going <laughs> to say, are the words sure do or... That'd be funny if they were. But in reality, my two words are ancient history. Okay. Paul? My two words are crumbling pieces. Okay. Crumbling pieces and ancient history. Let's use these four words and talk about Don Shard. All right, Paul, let's start with you. Crumbling pieces. Okay. Um, mostly these go together, and honestly, it's a direct reference to our sleepless characters here, how they're just made up of a bunch of little crumblings and pieces and um, run all over the place. But I um, thought it was also kind of 
representative of our story. Um, our 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 players here, Lopin, Risen, and and everyone, um, they're they've made it to this island now to to Aemia, yep. um, which is a great accomplishment, and they've made it so far. But I can't help. But these sleepless definitely don't want them there, and I think we're starting to see that. Uh, I feel like our story may start to digress or crumble a bit um, into some chaos and disaster. So uh, that that's my prediction on the trend we have going on here. I, I did kind of leave you guys at a cliffhanger at the end of this episode. We kind of come Thank face you to so f- much. You're welcome. Come face to face with a huge sea monster and Nick Lee comes back to give us a little cameo. Uh, Elliot, what are your two words about? Kind of similar. Ancient history. Now that we've seen the island in these chapters, we, we've gotten to the island, we've seen a little bit of what's there. I'm really starting to get a feeling that our characters are not literally, but but kind of figuratively like going back in time almost. They're they're like discovering this island that is kind of untouched. It's just kind of decayed into the ruins that it are that it is now, but they're kind of rediscovering stuff that's really ancient plus the sleepless themselves are are starting to seem very kind of ancient so it's it's almost like a a little yeah to travel back through time sort of thing we'll talk about the chapters here specifically in a second but elliot one of your major critiques of sanderson just as a whole is you don't get to stop and observe the scenery in the writing Yep. Would you say that these chapters are an exception to that? Did you get a good picture of the island or or not? Maybe a little bit more than some of the other places we've been in Roshar, especially in, you know, like the latter half of the Stormlight Arcade books where things are just moving so fast. You don't get those moments to kind of soak stuff in. This is moving at a little bit of a slower pace. So we have maybe kind of the time to soak it in but there's still i feel like a little bit more description i feel like i would appreciate of like the island itself and you know the the landscape that's that's around there's definitely some there i i just wish there was a little more but that's me i'm just being picky yeah i'm hoping as we get onto the island more and get to see stuff that there will be some quality some quality descriptions or get, getting a good picture I found a typo in Donshard in chapter 12 where Lopin never closes his quotation marks for saying things. So canonically, I think that means Lopin is saying every word from from then on until the end of the book. 12 onward. Yes. So he is is articulating all of those words because his quote mark never closes. Wow. That changes things. Yeah. So he just stops and and tells you the rest of the story Lopin said. All right, back to chapter 11. We get a cool glimpse of how the Windrunners can actually be effective in the Navy. Did you guys enjoy this chapter as much as I did? Um, My first read of this was over a year ago, and I remember this being one of my favorite chapters of this uh, novella here because... Lopin jumps off the ship and uses his lashings underwater to save some, some 
to save some sailors. I thought that was really cool. Like it, it makes sense in my head, but I just never thought about it that you could, you know, speed swim with lashings underwater. Yeah, they're called wind runners, not water divers, you know. So, yeah, I was a little surprised, but I, I mean, it made total sense. I just never thought of it. Uh, it was really cool imagery or like action to see that, though. I, I felt the same way Lopin did at one moment of like, that seems really dangerous in that if he ever, you know, runs out of Stormlight at any point in time, he's just going to drown. But. I guess it's not any more dangerous than flying through the air. If you run out of stormlight, you're going to come crashing down to the earth. So, yeah, sure. Why not? Lashing underwater. It gives a little bit more merit to those creatures that reportedly drain stormlight that's been tracking the wander sail. And that was my immediate thought was if one of these sailors goes over, Lopin can't go save them because there's creatures going to drain them of stormlight in the water. But he does it anyway, and he thinks to himself the same thing of, well, if I do this again and I get drained, then I'm just, you know, dead. So you just got to go really fast. Just dip in, dip out. He tethers the captain's foot to the uh, to the deck so that she won't fly off. So a couple cool uses of his lashings uh, on, on a boat. Did you guys get anything else from this this chapter? The the lash to the deck thing was interesting, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Trevor. This was actually some pretty cool chapters just to watch kind of Lopin do his thing, the Windrunner thing, where he's, you know, just on the deck, like just ready for someone to get s- swept off, and he goes and like lunges and saves them. But the the fasten you to the deck thing, that makes me worried that like the captain, like her ankles are going to break or something. Like if your foot is just like bolted to the floor, like, yeah, that's going to hold you in place, but you may not want it to hold you in place. So that seemed like a, a danger, another dangerous one for sure. But I guess it's better than getting swept off into the storm perhaps. Yeah. I never actually thought about that. What I was actually thinking this whole time was like, man, how do these crews do it? Like, like imagine you're on this cruise ship or on this ship as a crew member, right? And they're like, all right, everyone go, I don't know, whatever they do, on but hoist the flank, whatever the heck they do, you know? <laughs> and you just go up there, and everyone's the just getting, yeah, everyone's just getting, like, blown off. Like, I would be like, no, sorry, like, we're just going wherever we're going, you know? Like, I'm not going to run up there to just get carried off instantly by the the winds and the storm. Like, that'd be pretty... I don't like those odds, you know? By the time that Lopin jumps off, saves the sailor, comes back, there's already another guy that's replaced the sailor who blew off. So they're like expecting people to just, you know. Exactly. Like, what are, are they just going to keep feeding people and they just keep flying off? Like, <laughs> yeah. Chapter 12. We finally get to Aemia. Or as as Lopin puts it, the first Herdazian to ever set foot on, on on the island, and Rushu's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. There's great shell corpses everywhere. There's gem hearts everywhere. There's other spheres as well, and everything looks fairly pristine. Everything's everything's not touched. There's no high storms here. There's no creme buildup from high storms, so. It, it's all very preserved. And Elliot, that's kind of tying into your two words where it kind of just feels like they're 
stepping into the Temple of Time in Zelda, where everything's very well preserved. What were your guys' main takeaways from landing on Aemia? Is it what you were expecting from the book? It was almost too much of what I was expecting. Like, it's, it's like exactly how we've been kind of led to understand Aemia from the myths and, and legends, which immediately had me kind of suspicious from the start, but pretty cool. Rushu comes I'd to that conclusion it. as well. Yeah. I actually focused in on the great shells and was trying to come up with like reasons why that would be the case that there's all these great shell carapaces and gem hearts and stuff on the beach. I'm wondering if this is like, you know, a breeding ground for them, like the shattered plains are, or are they drawn to here by some like power or were they like, attacking the island back in the day where they're constantly having to defend themselves from these great shells. Like I was trying to come up with a, a logical explanation for all of these bodies. I thought about that a little bit. Elliot. I kind of came, this probably isn't accurate, but in my head, as I was reading to make it make sense, I, I thought of it kind of like a, a breeding ground. Almost. I, I thought of them as just the big crab, sea turtles that are on the beach and all the babies probably like scooch to the water, <laughs> you know, and uh, all that. But um, yeah, it, it was I, interesting to see all that here. Very mystical. I did remember that on the Shattered Plains, at least, the Luxpren that Cord has been seeing on the journey so far we also have seen those near the chasm fiends on the shattered plains. Yep. And so there seems to be sort of a, a, a relationship between those two. I think we've even, didn't we even get some explanations for that within, in Oathbringer when they were in uh, Shadesmar maybe where they, they got to see the, what are they called? Trevor, help me out with this on the other side. Oh man. Uh, Mandras, I think. Yeah, I want to say that's right. And and we learned that they like help the the great shells exist. And so I was wondering if maybe this island of Aemia is like a actually kind of a congregation place for those Luxpren, and the great shells are like drawn to those. Actually, that we're getting here, since Cord has seen a, a bunch of those. That was that was the only like real guess I could come up with. Yeah, that's a best better guess than I could come up with. I didn't realize this until my until fairly recently, but the term great shell isn't a specific animal. It's not like a chasm fiend. It's not a species. It's just a classification of like water animal with a shell on it. So anything from like a turtle to a big crab to a sandthid, they're all called great shells. And they're going to vary in shapes and sizes. I didn't really, I didn't really gather that until somebody explained that to me. Yeah. I've always just treated it as a, like a general term for large monsters from the sea. Right. When they, right. When they get out of the storm, cheery, cheery, as Rissen was hoping, that's the whole point why we're here. 
um, or at least the whole point why Rissen's here. Uh, Chiri Chiri kind of perks up, looks around, sees a bunch of Luxbrand, and jumps off the boat and dives underwater. And she's gone. We don't see her the whole rest of the, the episode here. What are your guys' uh, thoughts on Chiri Chiri? Is she going to... Is, she looks fairly good for a couple seconds there, and then she's gone. So what, what's up with her? I mean, I, I doubt that this is just going to be like the last we see of her. Like, she'll come back in some form or fashion, um, and we'll get to see Chiri Chiri again. I don't, I don't know. Maybe she's going to go find whatever big secret is lying here in, at this island. Um, or maybe she's going to go find another Larkin. Maybe a mommy and daddy Larkin, a big make, dragon, you make know. Larkin like, babies? <laughs> maybe, yeah. And Chiri Chiri lived happily ever after. And Rissen's going to be sad. And Rissen was very sad for the rest of her days. I don't like this story anymore. <laughs> I don't like this bedtime story. So they get on, they land on the beach. There's no creme, which they notice. They walk into the uh, Akina, the ancient city, and there is creme. There, there's like uh, there's a half sunken city that seems to be weathered by um, high storm. Creme is like a residual dirt buildup from high storms sweeping across Roshar. It brings dirt with it, and you know there's slow buildup of creme and. The island seems to implicate that there are no high storms here, but then they find Akina, and it's fairly small by Lopin's standards, and Akina seems to be half buried in Krem. And they find the Oath Gate. Well, by the end of this episode, they have summarized that this whole thing is a fake, that there's a real treasure on this island underneath the island so that, that they have con- that they have constructed the sleepless presumably have constructed and the gemstones on the beach are fake maybe some of the gem hearts are real like from the the great shells but then the the akina itself is is fake and the real city is underneath um and the real oath gate is underneath so did, were you guys ex- expecting this when they walked up um, to be like some sort of fake presentation? Uh, when I read this, I fully expected this um, because there's something similar um, in another Brandon Sanderson book, but I will leave it at that. We haven't read it yet. I was expecting that they would have met with sleepless resistance before this i did not think the sleepless were going to let them land i thought you know we kind of where we left it at nickley and and company had tried to convince them to turn back try to convince them to turn back tried to convince them to turn back they still are not so they've kind of concluded oh yeah we're gonna have to kill them so why they didn't sink them in the storm i don't i don't understand i don't know and i was confused by by that so when they got to the island and i'm i'm kind of already confused of like why why did we even get this far so they're having this you know fake city i I don't know if i was expecting it but it did seem fairly obvious as soon as they you know explained it
Yeah, I think the thing I've been wrestling with, honestly, about like s- story integrity, is I feel like if our sleepless really didn't want them there, they 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 could be gone. Like I don't fully know what all the the sleepless can do, but given just who they are and how long they've been here and how long they've kept this area safe, like I feel like they could have just destroyed their boat or something already. And and been done with it. I, I'm a little surprised that our heroes have made it so far. Uh, I'm the same. That's kind of where I'm thinking too. But if I if I think if I want to dig for a an in plot explanation for that, I think I read into that that the sleepless are very hesitant. They clearly have the capability to sink this ship probably fairly easily, but they haven't. They haven't at any point along the st- along the journey, and they're letting them land on the island, and they still haven't sunk them. That seems to imply to me that not just Nickley is you know hesitant to kill them all. The rest of the sleepless are you know trying all their other options first, which is actually a rather reassuring thing to learn about the sleepless. I think because our main experience with a with a sleepless was back in edge dancer right with our our first iteration of of mr kremlin man who is clearly very evil and so to learn that the rest of the sleepless are not like embodiments of evil is very reassuring because these things are quite powerful i guess that's true we did not have a good first impression of our no sleepless friends here so maybe there is more reason or more method to the madness um you know, maybe they're not just ruthless killers, but our first our first guy definitely seemed like if he was in charge, the first warning would have just been death to all of the, the sailors, so Yep. Yep. They they certainly give our wander sail inhabitants a lot more of a chance than they did the interlude, um, back in Oathbringer. Uh back in Oathbringer they they that ship breaches the soul cast spikes. And at that point, the sleepless terminate them all. They give them poisonous soup. They don't even let them land here. They're willing to let them land and try to, you know, be creeped out by the Island, look around for a second, grab some gemstones and go. And that's what they're hoping happens. They, they peek a little bit further because Rushu and Lopin are fairly smart. And they're like, that that's not a real oath gate. The, the one in the Shattered Plains withheld way more uh, bad storms than this one, and it was still intact. So they poke around for the real Oath Gate, and that's when they attack. So What are you guys' thoughts on Cord? We've got a little bit more of Cord in these uh, in some of these chapters before she grabs Rissin and jumps off the boat. I feel like I, I kind of get that she's almost a spitting image of her father, Rock. Um, very similar in, like, protective nature. Maybe that's just a horn-eater thing. But that, like, she stayed next to Risen, Risen and just, like, kind of instantly yanked her off the boat. Um, hopefully they will be okay. But, you know, just like that, that, like, kind of... Protective nature um, reminds me of rock. 
She keeps dropping little hints that have got me intrigued. She keeps like mentioning the the Horneater Peaks and the perpendicularity and old gods and and things like that that are, are really starting to make me wonder. Like, we really need a good you know chord comes clean scene where she explains what all the you know horn eaters are up to up in their mountains because now i'm curious she keeps referring to the gods who sleep not is is the inter is the translation there yep and what are your thoughts on rushu she gets her own little time to shine figuratively and literally She she whips out a soul caster out of nowhere, which caught me off guard. I guess I had kind of been under the assumption, and, and maybe this is still true, that it takes training to wield a soul caster, and that you like when you are an ardent who's a soul caster, you're like dedicated to that. You have like a partnership almost with your soul caster, and you you know do it until you die, sort of thing. But then Rushu kind of like whips it out like, oh, yeah, I, I checked one of these out from the quartermaster before we left Yurithiru. And it, it seemed a different, you know, kind of approach to that than we've seen before. But still very, very handy to have one of those with us on the, the journey here. One of my favorite lines in this book was Rushu turns to Lopin and says, I'm not going, I've told Navani I'm not going to Aemia without either a Soulcaster or a Shardblade. And unfortunately, she gave me the more boring one of the two. So I got stuck with a soul caster and I wanted a shard blade. But here we are. Tough. R- Rushu seems rather ambitious to me. She, like, I like her in that she's clever and she's, you know, did all that work to help Rissen with the floating chair and all that, some cool stuff. But I'm actually. If she was a more major character, I'd actually be a little bit worried about her because she seems very worried about her in the sense of like not trusting her. I think that she seems very like eager to lead and she seems very eager to like prove herself and very like doesn't listen to the people around her super well. So, yeah, I'm guessing that's not going to be an issue necessarily down the road. But if she if she does become a major character at some point then I'm going to have my eye on her. I see what you're saying to a minor extent. I can see Rushu as being like the kid who's like, well, he's like, oh, let's go do this. Or like, isn't afraid to like do something. Like I think of messing with the span read and stuff. That was Rushu, right? Um, Like messing with the span reads, doing all this stuff and being like, I know what I'm doing. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. This is cool. And then we'll like mess something up or whatever. But I haven't caught any kind of like ill intent or like honestly any negative feelings towards Rushu so far. Um, but I, I, mean, I think Rushu's cool. It still just seems like minor character to me. Um, kind of just like a windrunner, which is awesome. Um, but not that much like depth of, of character. Right now. She has a line uh with with Rissen where they're about to go for the beach landing and Rissen says, Alright, we're gonna send our combatants 
onto the beach, make sure it's safe. And then Rushu just gets in the boat with them. And Rissen says, uh, no, we're going to, you need to stay and we're going to send the non-scholars. And she goes, yeah, I heard you. And gets in the boat anyway, because <laughs> she answers to Navani and that's it. It doesn't care what Rushu has, or what Rissen has to say. And and that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Like I'm totally I'm totally with you, Paul, in that I don't think she's done anything overtly negative or, or sneaky or anything like that. Everything she's done is, has been very you know straightforward. But that kind of stuff where she's a little bit kind of headstrong, maybe ambitious a little bit in the in the negative sense. I'm I would be suspicious if she ends up you know being trusted with super important information or put in a position of of power maybe later on in our story. So at the very end of chapter 15, where we have left off our reading here, the sleepless attack. They attack uh, Huyo, who's holding the beachhead, um, Lopin's cousin, and they attack the, the boat. And Nickley approaches Rissen. And w- 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 before I get to that, what were you guys' thoughts on the descriptive text of the sleepless coming out of the water where the water like boils Kremlings out of it and Nickley arranges himself right in front of Rissen and Rissen's like screaming and freaking out. I can't blame Rissen for that reaction for sure. No, no blame whatsoever there. Um, that was definitely like a pretty intense scene. I guess I don't know. I feel like I should have been more phased than I was. Like, it was definitely intense. And it was also my fault because I think I was reading this, like, right when I was about to, like, before I was going to sleep. <laughs> um, and I kind of, like, as soon as the scene started, I knew it was going to happen. Like, either she was going to be attacked by some big monster thing or Nickley was going to appear, right? Like, we were going to see him assemble from our Kremlings. Um, and so it felt, like, fairly predictable i guess but this was this is where i thought it was really cool with cord um well i mean we would have instantly lost like no res- disrespect to risen but she would have just died if if cord hadn't yanked her off the boat you know um, and she still might low-key but i was i was gonna say i don't know if the water is the safest place to to run to <laughs> y- yes but <laughs> i think you have to run. So yeah, you know, there's nowhere else to run, so um but right, she's a horn eater, right? Shouldn't they be super good? Aren't they always like swimming in those springs or whatever up on the horn eater peaks? What they claim, yes. So uh, I'm hoping she'll just be able to and aren't horn eaters like huge and strong too? Like shouldn't she just be a all star swimmer? I have They're... faith. I have faith that they'll live, at least from this. I think it would be kind of um, a bummer. Yeah, it would be it would be a letdown <laughs> if it was it. like, oh, whoops! Like, listen, they both drowned, like, of natural causes. <laughs> they just didn't make it to shore, you know. Horn eaters are just as tall as Alethi, and as far as like Earth measurements go, Alethi averages like six foot six, so. And horn eaters are like 
more beefy than Alethi. Like, they've got the muscle behind the height. Back to the scene where the sleepless are, like, coming out of the water and there's, you know, countless Kremlings just, like, boiling out of out of the ocean. I think that's one of those scenes where you read that and you're like, whoa, cool, that that's awesome. But, like, if you were actually physically standing there... I'd be terrified. Like that would oh, be boy. horrible. But when you read about it, you're like, Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something more horrifying to like see in real life. <laughs> I right. can't really come up with anything, but you're right. Like, like reading about it, I'm like, Oh shoot. Okay. Nice. Right. And Go then it, like that's sick. Yeah. And then it talks about the soldiers are like swiping at the Kremlings as they're coming. Like, what do you do? You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are they supposed to do? Attack the the one Kremlin? Like that's that's what I don't understand. Like I don't know what they do. Like I feel like you need like a dragon or something to like incinerate the entire thing. Like I don't know how you kill these guys other than that. I really don't. Other than like entirely squashing its whole body like at once. Like, and aren't we told that this is the, like their human forms is just kind of like a piece of their like total yeah horde. Right. Yep. I'm curious. Like, are we gonna see like a he- enormous like thunderclass of like Kremlings? You know, like is how big are we? How big is are each of these hordes? That like I'm I'm now imagining like all the sleepless like coming together and forming this like amalgamation huge mech beast thing that they can like. I don't know, fight a thunderclass with that. That would be pretty epic. And yeah, great question, actually, that I hadn't thought about. If we do get in the situation where we need to, like, kill one of these things, like if our heroes need to take down a sleepless, like, do you have to kill every last little Kremlin that's associated with that being? Or, like, if you kill the majority of them, does that, like, do the rest of them just die? Or is there, like, a central brain mother Kremlin that if you, you kill that one, all the rest, you know, shut down. Now I'm, I don't know. I thought of an obscure reference. I'm not going to share though. Thank you, Trevor. Once again, thanks for your insight. You're welcome. Any any more thoughts? I, I'm excited to see how we're going to get out of this one. That's for sure. Do we think... Elliot, do you think Risen is going to like become a Knight's Radiant from our story here? And if if so, this is an optional answer. If If you do think so, what order do you think she would be? That's a good question. That is a good question. I, at the start of this book, I would have been like 90% sure, yes, she's going to become a Night Radiant. And for one of the reasons being something we even talked about before, how a lot of our Radiants have like serious either disabilities or challenges they have to overcome it seems like all of our radians have to face that sort of thing where they've got a, like a major roadblock in their life that they're trying to get over. 
at least a lot of them anyway. And Rissen fits that category, you know, to a T. She has this huge physical disability that she, you know, is spending a lot of the story having to to deal with and, and figure out how she, you know, maintains her authority when she can't even walk and can't even look look people in the eye at eye level. So all of those things to me felt like they were pointing towards, oh yeah, we're gonna see a moment where she becomes a radiant and it's gonna be epic and it's gonna, you know, come together. As the story is progressing, I'm I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I think that's dropped to maybe 50% for me as whether she's going to go that way. I still think it fits very much with the, I, I'll, I guess I'll call it a trope at this point, with the, the different characters that we've got. But I don't know. I'm, I don't know. As as far as which order, hmm. Rissen is, Rissen's the merchant, right? So she's kind of clever. She's trying to always, you know, outsmart those around her she at the same time though does kind of care about her people you know she she very much cares about her crew and you know taking care of cheery cheery and all of that so i don't know my guess on it if you want to know is i could see her as kind of like my guess would be like a whale shaper uh because i could see I don't know that much about Will Shapers, but just going off the name, I, I'm guessing it would be kind of more like a leadership, like, um, basically encouraging and helping like people be what they can be. I guess and I, I could see that from her like leadership position, I guess, with the with the crew uh, and how she's like working towards that. But I know very very little about Will Shapers, so. That's just like my guess. I feel like that would fit kind of neatly into what we have going on. But I I understand what you're saying about like whether or not she will actually become because like honestly we're what we've got like a quarter of the book left and we haven't even at least that I can remember seeing. I don't remember seeing like a mention of like a spren or anything. Like she talks to Chiri Chiri a lot, but like there hasn't been any reference to other things, so True. I don't know that we'd see it here. But I mean, maybe, maybe in Rhythm of War or something. Like, I could definitely see it happening, like at some point. Um, if if I were assuming to place... she survives the the swim, you know. <laughs> I was gonna say she's not in a very upright position at the moment. But if if I were to place her, I would I would probably place her in either Else Caller or Truth Watcher. Would would be my two that would come to mind initially. Else Caller because. The example we have right now is Yasna, and Yasna is definitely the scholar of don't esti- underestimate else callers or you will regret it. And that's a lot of Rissen here is you don't, like a lot of people underestimate Rissen simply because of her being hand, or be, being paralyzed. So there's a lot of that. The truth watcher aspect, I, th- I feel Rissen suffers a lot from imposter syndrome of I'm I've been granted this leadership role and I definitely don't deserve it and we see a lot of that in Renarin as well of I'm this I'm not who everybody thinks I can live up to I'm not a knight radiant I'm just Renarin so I second all of that that made a lot of sense the other thing you mentioned you mentioned Paul that we haven't seen a spren you know hanging around Rissen yet. The other thing 
that we haven't seen 75% through this book is a Dawn shard. And we haven't even seen like major candidates for a Dawn shard. Like you and I have been, you know, picking I on have, but <laughs> every possible thing. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you think the, the sails on the ship are, are a Dawn shard, but uh-huh. I, we haven't really even the hit wonder any, sail like, itself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We haven't even had any like objects of interest, you know, come into the store. I was like, ooh, is that a Dawn shard? Is that, yeah. I thought we were going to be spending this whole book like, ooh, that's, that's a Dawn shard. That's a Dawn shard. Nothing. Nothing yeah. at all. Not even a mention. I, I, I also hate to let you guys down, but our predictions from last episode of all the heralds in lounge chairs on the beach with, with Dawn shards for everybody who came along, that didn't happen. I apologize. <laughs> oh, man. What the, well, that's, there's yeah you're right we were wrong they're not on the beach but i'm sure they're in the like whatever hidden place we're gonna go to my my prediction moving forward is it's gonna be a little bit of like a indiana jones national treasure we're gonna find the hidden keys and stones and find some hidden walkway and enter some you know hidden realm and all the heralds will be there and they'll be like oh my gosh you made it Here's your Dawn Shard as a reward. You you have chosen wisely. Yes, exactly. And so uh, we'll see it there. So it was yes, you're right. We were we were off a bit on the prediction, but now that we've gotten some more information, we've gotten there. It's just a matter of location. Like they're there. We're just yeah. It 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 does make more sense. We were hasty to be to assume that they would be there, like as a welcoming committee. But maybe the test is not just getting to the island, but also like finding the the secrets within. So, anything else for this uh, this episode? Before I go on a little bit of a tangent, go for it. So this is a a words of Brandon between when Dawn Shard was released and when Rhythm of War was released. And the question that was offered him was, does Stormlight Healing have anything to do with the cognitive realm of how you perceive yourself? And he said, yes, absolutely, 100% does. Stormlight can heal you based on how you view your flaws. So if you view yourself as paralyzed, you cannot heal from Stormlight. If you view yourself like as a permanent state of paralyzed, you you cannot view you cannot heal yourself. If you catch it before you perceive yourself that way, like in the month where Rissen would always try to, you know, get up and grab stuff, uh that would that she could have healed. So when you remember back in Oathbringer when she says, I went to Renarin and he couldn't heal me, it, it was too late. That directly ties in here, where she 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 no longer viewed herself as able to be mobile anymore, so she could not be healed by Stormlight. There's a little bit more to this, but any, any comments? Seems to fit with our, our understanding of Spren and how how you perceive them is incredibly important to their, their interactions. I'm also thinking of, you know, our other character here, Lopin, who regrew a limb 
and he was kind of my my one example of, well, hang on a second. If Rissen can't be healed after a month, we got the impression that Lopin's been without an arm for a long time. Right. How did he get to, you know, regrow his? But your explanation could easily fit into that. Lopin is pretty... I, special is the funny word to, to use, I suppose. But he's very determined, set in his ways. I, I could totally believe that even being without an arm for, you know, years, Lopin still thinks of himself as fully capable. He right. still thinks of himself as, you know, an equal match, if not better than any other Herdazian or any other person in the world. And so for him to, you know, regrow an arm, well, why not? Naturally, why not? Like that, that does seem to fit with the, the kind of mentality that Lopin has. Right. That is the other, or one of the other parts of this is Lopin ties in extremely well here of, as soon as he reached ideal, what, two? two? Two. He just regrew an arm? Or is it a one? Was it even one? That was his one. first, yeah. He literally sucked in Stormlight, and then... Yeah, was like, it was oh, ideal. You've got an arm. It was ideal one in words of radiance. He didn't hit ideal two until the end of uh, Oathbringer. So, yeah, he hits ideal one, and then just immediately starts growing back an arm. So it just has to deal with how you perceive yourself. What is another example of not being able to be healed by Stormlight? Are we referring to when Renarin tries to heal Adolin and can't do it? Or, or he tries to heal someone and can't do it, and then he goes to heal Adolin at the end of Oathbringer and can? He can heal Adolin. I don't remember who he can't heal besides Rissen. There's somebody who... that you. I do think you are right that he tries to heal somebody else and he can't do it. I don't remember. But that's was not who I'm when, referring to. Is it when um does doesn't Cal when Kaladin and Zeth first like fight in Words of Radiance and Kaladin gets like hit in the arm or something with a shard blade? Is that like a thing? Is this it like we're actually Okay. I'm trying to think of this, but I, that's my only. He guess. does successfully heal that with Stormlight, though, fairly immediately. Okay. And Adolin like freaks out. He's like, "You were definitely stabbed in the arm, and you're fine. You can't do that." Yeah. <laughs> Any other guesses before I give it to you? Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. So within the first five chapters of Words of Radiance, what do Bridge Four do? That that was a long time ago. You're you're stretching my brain here. They Because they were free, like they weren't doing bridge runs or anything, right? Oh, oh, oh! Was that when they were just like testing things? They were testing. Yeah, they were testing Kaladin's abilities. It's a little bit later. One of the first things that R- Bridge Four in Rhythm of War, sorry, Words of Radiance. What one of the first things they do is they all go get Bridge Four tattoos of freedom on their forehead over their slave brands. Remember this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What yes. happens to Kaladins? It 
It doesn't work. It doesn't on work. Kaladin. Even more so, the Stormlight pushes it out and maintains his brands. How you perceive yourself. I'll leave it. Mm. I'll leave it at that. That is the answer to a riddle that's been hanging out there for a long time. I remember being very, very confused by that at the time because it did not make sense that the Stormlight would prevent that, that the brands from disappearing or the, the tattoo from sticking. So interesting, interesting. Wow, that's a mental exercise to go back that far, but that makes a lot of sense now. And tells you a lot about Kaladin. It tells you a lot about Kaladin. When I when I read that and I made that connection for myself, I was I was like, wow, that's really depressing. That Kaladin still <laughs> views himself as a slave, still views himself as oppressed, and he's the captain of you know, the Cobalt Guard for, for Dalinar and has been a windrunner for so long and he still has these slave brands on his forehead. I, we're, we're really tangenting now, but I actually am really hoping to get into Kaladin's story again in Rhythm of War. I think one of the things I mentioned at the, our end of Oathbringer was I wasn't super happy with Kaladin's storyline in Oathbringer. So I do hope we get a little bit of a revisit with Kaladin and get inside his head a little more and figure out you know where he's at, how he's dealing with his things. Because yeah, that that is exactly something I'd, I'd love to revisit is how is Kaladin dealing with exactly that him? He still views himself as a slave despite all of this. How does he move on from that? Those are questions I would love for rhythm of war to answer. There's another quick cameo of that happening as well in Oathbringer. Shallan's illusions won't stick to Kaladin and it has to display his slave brands. That's how the wall guard finds him and, they're like, oh, you're a deserter. And it Shallan's illusion has dissolved from his head. You guys remember that? I do, yes. And doesn't she also put some sort of like grotesque illusion on top of him that's like she can't do something, you know, fine-tuned and that would, you know, actually be realistic because it won't stick. So she does something ridiculous, and also she's just enjoying the you know moment to make fun of Kaladin. Right. All right, anything else for episode 99? Not here. Let's uh let's keep reading. All right. Thanks for joining me Paul and Elliot. Next week we will have a episode 100 special and we will finish Donchard episode 101. So see you guys next week. Thanks for joining me. Toodles. Farewell. <laughs>